0: Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science. In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is the first episode in Japan. Today we speak with Matt McDevitt, who is both young and impressive. Uh, he's currently the director of data engineering at ThinkBig Analytics, uh, which is a, originally a startup company from Silicon Valley. Uh, that eventually got bought by by Teradata, and now has thousands of employees. But Matt, uh, interestingly, was uh, one of the early employees, and he's he's grown both in a professional capacity, and his roles have grown along with the company. So that that makes for a very very interesting uh, conversation. In this episode, we talk about big data, open source data engineering and data science from a perspective of how they integrate and uh, collaborate with each other. We discuss GDPR and talk about uh, personal, personally identifiable data and uh, how to look at data lineage in data processing pipelines and analytics as well. We discuss uh, data value, uh, data products, and how to present data analysis to customers. And we also talk about a, a really interesting role, which is a delivery lead role and how, how it's formed and what uh, skills are required for a delivery lead role. I hope you inco- enjoy the conversation. Hi, this is Felipe Flores and I'm sitting here with Matt in Tokyo, Japan. How are you doing, mate? Doing good. Great weather today in Japan. It's really nice. It's really nice. So This is uh, my second day in Japan and I've been so impressed so far. It's a great, great place. Yep. Um, mate, at the beginning I wanted to ask you how, how did you get uh, started in the field and what were your early days like?
1: Sure, so it really goes back to when I graduated. Um, so I graduated in 2011 from Stanford University. Yep. Um, I majored in international relations and I minored in computer science. And basically right after I graduated I started for a company, a startup company in the Bay Area, um, called Think Big Analytics. And Think Big Analytics was very unique. In that it was founded in 2010, and it was solely focused on open-source big data solutions, combining data engineers and data scientists. This wow. is back in 2010. Yeah. So HortonWorks didn't exist. MapR was still in stealth mode. Cloudera mm-hmm. had just started. Mm-hmm. We were our, we were their first. Uh, Um, partners, actually, services partners. Wow. And, yeah, the uh, co-founder was really big in Hadoop. He was using Hadoop back in 2006, 2007, so very early on. Very. When Doug Cutting was working on it, basically. Yeah. And then there was another co-founder that was focused around the sales element that helped with the acquisition of MySQL to to Sun, which was then acquired by Oracle. Mm -hmm. Um, And both of them had started a consulting company back in the 90s, late 90s, around um, doing services around internet applications during the during the .dot com boom, so they had a lot of experience, and I was very convinced by them. Started with them, and and then uh, you know was in a sales, marketing, and project management type role, quasi right. role, where I was able to see kind of every element of the business and lead the projects and convince clients around the vision and sell it to them. And so I I started off small and just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I moved out to Salt Lake City in 2013 to help start our solution center, which was kind of a lower cost office for us to have a bunch of engineers in Salt Lake City. And then I moved to New York City to help start our office in New York City. And then we got acquired by Teradata in 2014. That's when I moved out to New York. I was actually, I had no idea we were being acquired. We had acquired, I had just moved up to New York, I was like, great, sweet, let's see what's going to happen. And it turned out to be a great thing. They kind of left, left us to be on our own to develop solutions around primarily Hadoop, NoSQL, and data science type activities, and in 2015, I moved to London to help expand, so a lot of moving. That's <laughs> great. So from 2012 to, 2000, 2011, 2012 to 2015, I moved a lot, and in London, my goal was to help accelerate growth across many countries in the Eastern Hemisphere, so Asia, Africa, Europe, and uh, Oceania, and uh, out of London, I worked for clients like Lego and Denmark and you know traveled all over Europe. I'd never been to Europe before. so apparently. Apparently. And then in uh, last year, starting from January, I was going back and forth between London and Japan to help accelerate growth in Japan, the Think Big Analytics brand with Interadata, and to help deliver services around these types of open source solutions or um, complex solutions leveraging data science and data engineering. And last July, I finally moved to Japan. And now I'm in Japan and it's been a very interesting experience. It's
0: great and how um, how old was the, the company when you first joined? Yeah,
1: so it was very young. Uh, I started when it was less than two years old. Um, I think it was a year and a half old at the time. It was about 15 people. Uh, right. So yeah, it was me, the co-founders, and just a few people uh, across a few different offices as well. So we had an office in Mountain View. We had a co-founder in Park City, Utah. We had people in Chicago. Um, so between those geos, we had less than fifteen people when I started. So we went from that to you know now we have like over five thousand people globally within Teradata as wow. the Think Big Analytics brand. Yeah. Know? So it's been, yeah,
0: <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So quick. So yeah. quick. Um, what What do you think made that growth so so quick?
1: Yeah. So. Some of that growth, uh, of course, comes from people transferring within Charity mm-hmm. under the brand, right? A lot of that, right? I'd say maybe eighty percent of the people come from that. But then you still have about a thousand people that you've grown over the years, and a lot of that had come from, you know, us going to new locations, selling the vision, getting a kind of an anchor project, and then just hiring aggressively in that market and telling them the story. Before acquisition and after acquisition, the story was very attractive. Um, you know, basically you're going to work on very complex problems, the most cutting edge problems in the world, leveraging vast amounts of data, leveraging the most advanced technologies, all the way from highly scalable MPP databases to uh, linearly scalable Hadoop or NoSQL databases to machine learning to deep learning, all the kind of stuff, right? And we're able to go to clients, tell them we, we do this thing, these, these types of projects, tell them we have the experience, and also attract more talent by saying the same story to them, right? So it's a a double pitch, right, to both new recruits and to clients and helps us scale.
0: Oh man, so many! I got so many questions. First I'll ask you uh, about your roles around the the sales and the marketing. Sure. What what did that teach you, that helped you in your later career? Yeah,
1: so as you can imagine, I'm right out of college, right? So I haven't worked, you know, I did some internships, but those internships were all academic research, right? So I, I researched Africa and political conflicts and things like that, but I never worked in a business. So my first foray was really um, just to help grow the startup. I was the only kind of like new grad, doing all different types of things. So I helped with financial forecasting and creating marketing content and sending out email blasts and doing outreaches to sales, doing recruiting, right? Just to understand kind of how the business operates. So when I did all of that, I then moved on to the next piece, which was, managing our projects, and actually delivering with data engineers and data scientists. right? So that enabled me to be able to see many different um, solutions developed for clients and see many different perspectives of, of what we do, essentially, as a business.
0: Exactly. That's really, really good to get the yeah end-to-end full view um, and uh, the delivery side. And what, what were some? Um, Exciting or memorable uh, projects or applications or maybe industries that you work in. Yeah. So
1: that's a that's a great point. So one one project that we did, this public one, was uh, a project with a company called HGST. It stands for Hitachi Global Storage Technologies, mm-hmm. but it's actually owned by Western Digital. Right. Uh, Western Digital being like one of the three you know memory companies you know uh, uh, in the world, HDD or SSD, and uh, they wanted to collect a significant mm-hmm. amount of data. Um, from their testing facilities, essentially, um, and then be able to combine that data with information from products and how they're being used to improve the product, to be able to uh, predict when failures would occur, to um, you know, be able to just provide uh, services to customers around improving the, the quality of, of you know when a drive goes down or something like that. Imagine if you send a thousand drives to Amazon, and then you know two hundred drives are broken, and yeah. there's some core root cause issue there. If you could prevent that, or you can even let Amazon know before they find out, then that's better, right? Yeah, um, because that can be crippling to the business. So we really tried to help them with that. And this was really big data. So we're talking about a significant amount, hundreds and hundreds of terabytes of data over the course of a year of us ingesting it into um, a big data database, a big data platform we call it a BDP. And that was like my first big, big project where we had a lot of people involved back in the US. And then in London, my first project was actually in Denmark, where I worked with some really, really uh, great uh, thought leaders and, and visionaries within LEGO to help develop an application called uh, LEGO Life, which is an app you can download right now, and to develop the recommendation engine behind it. Nice. Um, and that was a really interesting project where we were able to develop um, a some machine learning algorithms um, as well as a recommendation engine for what kids. And we also had to be very mindful of something called the GDPR yes. um, and how to leverage data from users and be very sensitive around it. That was a very critical point, right? So we couldn't just go in there and dump data into a database and then worry about it later. We really had to think about how to have proper governance and metadata and lineage around the data to be able to prevent any issues occurring with that, right? And this was back in you know, 2015. So we were very early on thinking about this, right? Very early yeah. on, I didn't even know that GDPR was around. It wasn't. It just it's just actually the twenty-fifth in five days. Yes. But they were
0: thinking ahead, right? The very conscious of, of the brand, right? That's incredible. Yeah. So can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, GDPR? What it uh, it stands yeah. for, and yeah. what are the main components?
1: So GDPR literally stands for General Data Protection Regulation, um, and it is a significant amount of new regulations that, when they almost cripplingly uh, restrict and stringent. Um, a lot of it is around personally identifiable information or PII. So not only is it like, hey, your email address or something like that, but PII is not necessarily binary. It's more of a gradient, right? So mm-hmm. your name, Felipe Fort Flores, right? That's that's not necessarily PII, actually. You would need something else to to actually identify you personally. Now, if you say, I don't know if you live in Sydney or what have you, right? if you you combine that with your name, then that may be personally identifiable. So when you take this in a more wide lens view, you can actually have a collection of a lot of different data from a lot of different data sets that will identify you uniquely, and it may not even be something like the social security number. It may just be a collection of data sets that's able to identify you. So companies have to be incredibly mindful of data that they collect and it's actually a bit of a deterrent against this big data craze, because yeah. now people have to be very conscious of how they use data, how they leverage data, mm-hmm. how they store data, because you can call up a company and say, delete everything you have on me, and they have to be able to do it. Wow. So when, you, when you're when you using a lot of, you know, <clears throat> schema, that can be quite challenging. Mm-hmm. If you just dump the data in there sometimes, right? Which we never recommended to customers, and that's what differentiated us, because we were able to help customers get actual managed data lakes, as opposed to what we call data swamps or something Great. of that nature.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's... That's because uh, that's one sort of yeah my my um, frustrations with, with uh, yes. that data <laughs> swamps. <laughs> um, but so with uh, with GDPR, is that does that only apply within the company? As in the data that a company has, can yeah. can be PII. Yeah. Or is it if somebody is able to combine data from the company and other sources mm-hmm. as well? It's a great yeah. question.
1: Um, yeah. So in the in the so first of all this is an eu regulation Mm -hmm. and then also there's a lot of stipulations around where data can be stored Mm -hmm. like physically as well so you can't store data in other places perhaps um but from what i remember is if you can take that data source company Mm -hmm. then it's considered pii if you're able to derive someone so even if you have two separate databases, there has to be significant amounts of security between the two so that one person can't get keys to both and then combine it together and then personally identify somebody. Um, and if you are able to do that, you have to be able to delete both the data sets. Wow. And the only, I think the only uh, exception to that rule is financial transactions. Okay. Because you can't just yeah. get that wiped away because mm-hmm. then a lot of shady stuff would happen yes. in the world if you could just <laughs> wipe clean your financial transactions you imagine, yeah. so it's it actually gets very hairy um, and again I think that they've, they've been a bit more lenient on the interpretation of the rules mm-hmm. I think at one point they even considered like going you know anything that's backed up to, to tape as data which is like impossible basically to go yeah. back and find that would have to be deleted which means you would just have to torch all of your <laughs> super old backup you know like that's just it's just infeasible right so I think they've been, gotten a bit more lenient But if you notice, you probably received a lot of emails over the last few months saying, hey, we've updated our policies, our terms and conditions around data usage and data Mm -hmm. protection. So it's interesting. And in my opinion, I think that this is a huge weapon against companies like Google and Facebook. The EU is notorious for suing these companies, right? And this is a massive weapon against them. But also, it's a big move in terms of um, personal rights or liberties for individuals around this new world where everything is collected and stored. There's been famous cases where people have been wanted to be removed from Google search results because the, something bad happened to them, and they became notorious, and they don't want that coming up anymore, right? right. So it's coming into a, um, a very philosophical debate around how to use and store and
0: leverage data. Exactly right. Yeah. Wow. So is the, um, do you see the main focus of GDPR as the, um, the governance piece, and so people can... Maintain um, control over the data. Yeah. Or do you see there's something, something? Different? Well,
1: it's it's everything, right? So you know, data lineage, where it came from, the source systems, right? You need to be able to track that metadata, the data around, uh, all the information around the data, the, the data of the data is important to be able to track it and find it. So if you have very simple data in a you know in a table somewhere, it may be quite easy to find it. But if you have something that's much much more difficult to find, then it gets more complex. And governance is all about the access of the data, right? And so making it secure. Um, so, you know, you need to have all of it. Um, it. Without it, you won't be able to find the data to delete it. You won't. You won't be able to restrict people to be able to access it. So it, it's an it's an entire problem that needs to be solved holistically. Um, so it's important also when you are starting big data projects, how do I get going? How do I start getting value? But also, how do I ensure the future that this doesn't become an issue later, right? You know, if from an engineering background. Um, technical debt is a huge thing where you don't have testing over time it gets worse and worse and worse so well, this is kind of like a, I don't know, data security debt if you don't set these rules up in the beginning you don't start doing it correctly then you may have a huge issue later on and that's happened to a lot of companies and that's a reason one major reason why a lot of companies have not gotten value from their big data projects I think they say like 80% or 90% of big data projects have not gone to actually full fruition or having value yes. And I think this is part of it
0: interesting yeah interesting um, Oh, definitely. Oh man, so many questions there. <laughs> but um, tell me, around the, the big data projects, what are some some other main or key problems that you see um, and to why they haven't come into fruition on the value that they promise? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would say that, you know, like
1: for instance the project that we did, Lego was very valuable. Mm. You can use the recommendation engine right now on your phone and it, it will give you recommendations, so that was great. And, you know, same thing for some other clients who worked for, but, um, I think the biggest issue is people just want to run after the technology yeah. without thinking about what's the true value, the true business result that we're going to be deriving from this. same thing for data science, just to segue into that, right. Is that, you know, R and D is great. We always need to have R and D. We need to have these creative thinkers out there doing things, but you need to move data science out of R and D and into actually developing uh, data products that will deliver value, whatever it may be, and be creatively thinking about that, right? So it's not just looking at the correlation itself, but what can we derive value from? And then how are we going to be able to do this? So I've also noticed that a lot of companies, they go, you know, hey, we wanna do a self-driving car. I'm like, great, that's awesome. All right, we're gonna give you X million dollars, so you go off and you develop an algorithm, and you come back. That's not how you develop a self-driving car application. Mm-hmm. That's not how you do assisted driving applications. You need to have a holistic view of program to be able to understand, okay, this is the solution we want to build, it's going to take an ensemble of different models, a, 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 a myriad of different approaches and experimentations that we need to think about the long term, develop a center of excellence, and always have that end result in mind about what is the actual business value that we're looking to gain from all of this data science work, right? So without, you know, some of it's just not being prepared and not thinking long vision and also short vision. Mm-hmm. We need value, we need to show some results to business stakeholders, but we need to think about doing this correctly. That's from kind of the data engineering perspective, but also from the data science perspective. What value are we what value is this system gonna bring? Yeah. What results are we looking to gain, right? What insights are we looking to derive and how will that impact the bottom line? I think those two things are very important. Very people important. just run after the technology yeah. and they don't think about those things. And that's that's kind of where people get in trouble. Oh, we want to do deep learning. Okay. Deep learning in and of itself
0: is no value. Yeah. You know, from a business perspective. 100%, and that's the only reason why people care about data science and their engineering, right? Yeah. They don't care that you're using the latest model or yeah. that you have sure. the best yeah. data structure or anything like that. Yeah. They care about the outcome and the, the value. Yes. Um, so how how do you... So I'm, I'm really excited that you're um, very focused on on the, on the that delivery side and yeah. on getting value side. How do you start to... Um, Get this into people's minds as they approach projects, both customers or or members of the team.
1: Yeah. So in my experience, um, you know, I've had many different projects: ones I've managed, ones that I've heard through the grapevine, ones that I've helped sell, ones that I've helped lead. Right. But I think the most important thing when you go into a client, usually, especially if you're a newcomer, right, Mm -hmm. you go and you say, "All right, we're going to do something pretty advanced." And sometimes it's a bit advanced for us as well. We haven't done it many times, or maybe it's our first time. We're going into a partnership. Having that vision, where are we going? What's the result? What's the value? How are we going to get there? Constantly reminding them the roadmap from just a sales perspective as a vendor, but also a value kind of roadmap for for a customer is very important. Having that leader there to constantly push them along, whether it is a data scientist or a data engineer or kind of what we call delivery leads or mm-hmm. an ensemble of all three, it's always important to keep them rolling towards that path. I'm reminding them that, okay, if you want to do this, we need to do this, this, and that, and advising them against certain decisions. Okay, they want to go this route, right? They want to use this type of database. No, 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 it's not right. I know you have a particular relationship with this vendor or whatever, you know, this may be cheaper, but it's wrong. Yeah. And to convince them that you need to say, okay, but you remember that date that we talked about? That needs to happen, right? And So to do that, you need to do X, Y, and Z, right, so.
0: That's right, that's great. And tell me about the delivery lead role. Yeah. Well, where do they come from, sure. and what are the responsibilities? Yes, so delivery lead role is really mm-hmm.
1: interesting, yeah. and that, thats my background predominantly. Um, before I moved into kind of more of the technical leadership role in Japan, uh, and the delivery lead role is really around um, expectation management with the client, mm-hmm. which is very important when you're doing. So this is one interesting. You, you have a consulting background, as you mentioned before. Yes. Expectation management is key, and when you're doing a quote-unquote agile project in three months. That's almost oxymoronic. How do you get something done in three months in an agile fashion with a client? They want results. (laughs) You can't just say, oh, we'll just move that to the next sprint, you know? So there's an incredible amount of pressure around expectation management and saying, like, look, we're in this journey together. We are trying to do something new for the first time for your organization, right? And if there was a tried and true way to do this, then it would be something simple and we wouldn't be working together. You'd be working with, think less big, analytics (laughs) or something like that, right? So. Um, That's a really critical role, but also team management, team morale, keeping the team um, focused on not just the, you know, for Scrum taxonomy, like not just the user story or the, you know, even the epic or the component of the application you're building, but what's the big picture, right? So, kind of like the, the onion, if you will, kind of what's the outer layer of the onion of what is the real value that we're looking to deliver and how does this relate? So, all the way down to the unit test, all the way up to, you know, uh, um, an enterprise application. So that constant reminder of what we're doing and guiding the the technical leads around that process, I think is very important. And without that, it kind of just may go into chaos where you have people arguing about philosophical differences or um, computing paradigms between two different database techniques. And it just gets into a quagmire, essentially. So Uh, keep them on track, customer and team.
0: Exactly. And I think think that's something. that's really missing uh, in the in the industry right now. I, I see a lot of a lot of places essentially almost hurting a bit because they don't have this delivery lead role. Yeah. Um, some yeah, somebody who, who does that that you just described. I think it's really 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 important. Uh, how long have you guys been doing that?
1: Uh, having delivery leads business? have been since the beginning of Think Big, right? Yeah. And these people have been predominantly strong consulting backgrounds, mm-hmm. usually technical background, right? Yeah. So. They don't have to be full stack engineers right but they need to be able to collaborate and understand what full stack engineers are talking about or what data scientists are talking about and how the pieces fit together like you know this is an apple this is an orange right they have to be able to classify they have to be able to understand then they have to be able to communicate to the client because the client is not i mean that's why they bring in consultants they're they're not educated in this they're trying to learn and sometimes they do learn and they become leaders in the space you know yeah which we have had the success with many people in the past around that right so yeah so it's it's like a technical background but strong consulting strong expectation management skills team management skills are, are critical yeah.
0: that's really good and on the on the team management side uh, what are some some of the things that you either look for in people that will do this role or yeah. things that you help them develop uh, to better do team management sure
1: So, again, kind of uh, having experience working in a consulting environment, um, you know, is is really important. Um, You know, I interview people. This is probably the hardest role to interview for. Um, Technical roles are a bit more discreet, like, you know, you can do it or you can't. You did this well on the exam. Delivery role is much more interpersonal, as well as um, being mentally flexible to be able to deal with different things. You know, I can't go out and hire someone who's delivered deep learning projects. I just can't do that because they don't exist. Yeah. and if they do, they're not gonna, you know, be like looking to jump ship all the time. They're probably building their own company or something like that, right? right? Um, so you're looking for people that can deal with new technologies uh, from a delivery perspective, um, new ideas, new thoughts, continuously, and be able to move at the, you know, the, you know, at any moment to be able to direct the project in the right direction. So really strong, mentally flexible people that have a very strong kind of interpersonal or persuasive background in them whether it's consulting or sales or account
0: management mm. yeah definitely that's that's really that's really really good and um, tell me in in um, think big it seemed like from very early on you guys made some some decisions around around big data or like essentially going after big data and using open source mm-hmm. um, what what guided those decisions in the early days
1: yeah um, so so this is a bit of a uh, so I'll just talk about kind of the the origin story of the startup that is Think Big Analytics back in 2010. Yeah. It was you know the the pace of innovation around these technologies is so fast and so mm-hmm. rapid, and to capture this is really important. So if you want to work on, some, I mean, we worked on projects where uh, you know literally we're using something that came out four months ago in a research paper from the University of Washington. Yes. If you want to do that, if you want to work, if you want to be able to ideate around those things. Um, You need to leverage the open source and the Hadoop craze and and wave. You know, now we have Spark and Spark is super popular. And now you have TensorFlow. TensorFlow is open source, right? So the rate of innovation was so incredible, especially in terms of the co-founder's vision at that time. that that was the way to go, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we can work with the best technologies. And we, and you know honestly, when we started, there weren't data engineers. Yeah. Data science was, this was before data science became the sexiest profession in the world. Correct. We were using data sciences then, right? Yes. This is very Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. I think before Forbes made it popular. you yeah. know, So um, we had to go out and we had to hire statisticians and math, mathematicians mm-hmm. that were incredibly gifted, but also had a bit of programming skill, right? Mm-hmm. Scripting, Python, something like that. And then the data engineers were hardcore Java engineers, typically. They are very, very good engineers, but they had no big data experience, quote, unquote, big data. And by big data, I mean Hadoop and whatever, like Apache Hadoop uh, package, you know, yes. everything that comes with it nowadays, right? And we trained them on that. So we used to do Amazon Web Services uh, training on uh, a thing called e- EMR, which is their Hadoop uh, back in the day, last year and So we were the training course for them um, early on. So right. we had to train people. Um, Around these skills to be able to grow and and scale.
0: That's excellent. That's really really good and tell me around the um, Getting getting value from the projects uh, How is it that you guys get the the outcomes of the analysis to customers? Mm -hmm. And how is that is that value? How does the value come to to reality?
1: That's a very good question Um, so so when so customers, like, you know, we can take an example, right? So uh, uh, if we're working for a large semiconductor hardware company, something like that, right? So being able to get the data into the database, work with their team, so have our data scientists work with their business experts, or sometimes we have business experts as well, define KPIs or things that we're looking to aim for, release the data products into production, and then track the value of what's coming you know, coming back, right? So um, yeah. if we're, you know, Uh, If we have a report or something or some end user dashboard, how often is that getting used or accessed? Mm -hmm. Um, We used to do hackathons as well with users within the company to train them on how to do queries using Hive or some technology like that. So getting people using it. Um, What what I think is most uh, scary when you're doing a project is you're not getting any feedback from what you're delivering, Mm -hmm. which means that it's not being used. And that is always when I'm like, what's going on? Like if you're not hearing issues, then you're not doing it right. Yes, you're not being challenged on what you're delivering or what you're producing, right? So it's it's all about adoption as well. So adoption, I think, is a very big part of how we get data mm-hmm. into the hands of end users, which are then deriving insights from their customers
0: or what have you. Yes. <laughs> and um, how do you how do you drive that adoption, or how do you help it come along? Yeah.
1: So some oftentimes we develop center of excellences and mm-hmm. you know, or center of competencies, COEs mm-hmm. or COCs, and. Really what this is, is it's putting a new face on something that's probably been done before, right? So we're developing a new database system or a new application, and we create this center of excellence, this differentiator, and we train people in that group, and we create business models. So maybe you have an internal revenue system where you have your own internal dollars for a company X, and then a person, a business user will go in and say, I want to pay for, I want this solution. And then IT and data science, they get together and they size it, and they say, well, this is what the like the relative sizing of this solution would be, and then after that, you would you would you know have a discussion with business stakeholders and say, this is the uh, achievable business outcome that we're looking to derive. Yes. Could be a POC, could be a whole production thing. Depends where we are. Mm-hmm. This is how much it's going to cost for the company, right? However you want to measure that, and then there's a decision whether to move forward or not. So, kind of having that um, that process in place is very important. Having key individuals that are standing up that that new church of whatever it may be is yes. also critical.
0: Exactly. And then, how wide is the responsibility of the COEs or COCs? Would it be sort of COE of analytics or something smaller? Yeah, how wide is that's that a great question. So sometimes they're usually focused around
1: analytics, right? Because mm-hmm. analytics is the closest thing to business outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's multidisciplinary. From Different people, right? So you have business stakeholders, people who are project managers, or maybe they're from the business, like they're actually developing things for the business to make it run. And then you have people from kind of the analytics side, and then you have the IT, and together they work together. And I think one of the one of the things that, that people say often is, "Oh, right, well, the gap between IT and business is so great." Well, I think honestly, what's developed over the last five years is that data science is kind of this wedge in between to help kind of bridge the gap. But the danger is that data science sometimes gets put off into an island. Mm-hmm. They don't get access to the right tools. They don't get access to the right environments, right? When, when data scientists say they're doing big data and they're doing everything on their laptop, they're lying to themselves. <laughs> yes. Because it's not big data. It's, I mean, arguably, a definition of big data is when you have to scale from your laptop. To, to a system, a large scalable system. Right? So how do you enable and empower data scientists in that way right And you can't have these IT people saying like oh you didn't put in the proper request and I've seen that you didn't put it in this document format where you've requested something and it's like that you can't work that way. You need to be collaborative, you need to be back and forth. Hybrid teams has been a good way for us to, uh, to actually be successful. We have half data scientists or a third data scientist and the rest engineers mm-hmm. and we're using two to three week sprints to deliver data products as an example keeping right. them together right in the same group right and you can't do that with a massive IT group within a company yeah. it just they just don't move fast enough right they're maintaining things they're keeping the lights on so again it's the it's the purpose of a center of excellence to keep that close that intimate to be able to deliver value faster
0: right so it becomes almost like the like the agile team working on On that proof of concept or that product? Is that the the core component of the center of excellence? Exactly. So I mean you're trying to derive insights as fast as possible, but then you're also trying to,
1: ideally, you're trying to head up the next big engagement, this large production system that we're gonna implement that's then gonna hit users, right? And then you have that kind of that stakeholder committee, right? And that they're usually a mix of really senior business executives and also these members of the Center of Excellence, right? That are that are focused on how do we how do we kind of paradigm shift our organization in this way with these technologies and these processes and tools?
0: Yes, definitely. And what are, what are the, the challenges that you see in managing the the different groups that we have to work with? In, yeah. Like, one is social technology. <laughs> That's business. Definitely. So it's different ways of thinking, right? Yeah.
1: So in IT, sometimes when people say you know like like the you know this is for business users, they mean just sometimes less intelligent people, which is completely incorrect, right? Yes. You know, there's there's a very high view of engineers that they, you know, kind of command the universe because they can write functions that work, right? Business user on the other hand, they're like, these guys don't get it. They don't get the point of what we're trying to do. And data scientists are kind of in the middle. Sometimes you get more of the engineering type, sometimes you get more of the business type, right? And so you know, there's a lot of differences in personalities. There's a lot of differences in terms of what they want to derive from what they're doing, and interest in what they want to do. Engineers sometimes, all they want to do is just program. That's it. Yeah. They don't care about the output sometimes. Um, and then business users are the same. They don't care about the technology or anything to do with it. And you know, to be honest, they're more correct, I think. Because at the end of the day, when you go online to Google, you don't care what's running underneath of that. You just care about the the results, right? When you book a flight, do you care about what database it stores in? Hell no. You care about what what the results are, right? Um, So I think the most challenging thing is getting people with totally different perspectives, totally different reasons why they get out of bed every morning to agree on a single purpose and result right? of what we're trying to do, which is change the business or change the industry or create a new solution, right? And from different perspectives, having them all agree on that. Again, that's the outer part of the onion type thing. Yes. If everyone can see that, then it's okay. But if they lose sight of that, then they just end up squabbling. Right. That's right.
0: That's exactly right. And um, how how do you navigate the um, maybe like like the political um, landscape or landmines maybe (laughs) around uh, maybe different departments or maybe executives? yeah. What is some of your your approaches in, in yeah. navigating that through to deliver projects? <laughs> I can
1: tell you, in Japan, I definitely mm-hmm. have not mastered this because there's definitely a linguistic and cultural barrier that is massive. But mm-hmm. in my previous experiences, um, it's it's again just to kind of reiterate, going back to that point of getting people to agree on the mission, right? Yeah. So when you're working with a head of IT, usually they're they're smart enough around the business, right? Mm-hmm. And you're working with a head of analytics, right? You also want to sometimes persuade individuals within the organization to say, like, you know, this person's not getting it. (laughs) They need some encouragement. And that's very sensitive, very difficult to do as an outsider. Mm. So feeling like, you know, like, you know, being part of the team, like, you know, telling them and letting them know sincerely that your success is my success. If you succeed with this project, I will present with you on stage and your career will skyrocket as well as mine, really makes them feel comfortable about what you're trying to do. And it's not even an issue of money or anything like that. It's yeah. more like, how do we do this? So it's very challenging. It's very complex. And organizations are highly political by nature. Yeah. So navigating that is challenging, but always trying to remind them, okay, again, that's the date. This is what you want to do. This guy's in the way. Yeah. How do we get him to get on program right? Yeah. of what we need to do, whoever that may be? Right.
0: That's really good. And that's um, that's always a, a challenge that I found when when I was in consulting. Around getting the um, the trust and the buy-in from from the customer, but I think that that's a, a really great way to do it. Yeah, I really like it. Yeah. Um, in in your opinion, um, what makes a great uh, data scientist?
1: Okay, a great data scientist. Great question. Yeah. So um, so my team, just to kind of the people I manage, they're primarily um, the what we call the data engineers or the software engineers. Yes as well as the delivery leads, and then kind of the database design people. So it's kind of a mix of many different groups. And There's another team around data science, but I work very closely with the data science team on the project. Sometimes I will manage the data scientists to the delivery leads. Um, and the way we differentiate between mm-hmm. our data engineers and our data scientists is that our data engineers are production engineers. They're putting models into production. They are, uh, you know, very experienced software engineers. They can. They've been coding in Java for ten years or something. they now they're coding in Scala. Um, they are, you know, true software engineers, right mm-hmm. at the core, with an appreciation, understanding for data, and also, you know, understanding of algorithms. They need to be able to put machine learning algorithms into production. If you want to take an R model and put it and program it into in, into Scala and put it into a Spark job. You need to be able to understand the math behind it and collaborate with the data scientists. Yes. Data scientists, on the hand, is much stronger around the mathematics and statistics. So they are sometimes masters or PhDs in mathematics or statistics, or they have incredible knowledge in that background. Um, maybe they were research uh, engineers or research scientists before, but they have an understanding of programming. They can they can code a bit, um, and then they have a uh, an understanding and appreciation for the value that data can bring to the business. So. It's hard to find those types of data scientists. But what I, what I disagree with is that data scientists should be hardcore engineers, you know, software engineers, as well as mathematicians, because you will never find those people yeah. once in a blue moon. Okay. It's already hard enough to find what I mentioned before, let alone saying, oh, they need to be like you know, 10 years in Java. I mean, it's like we don't find that. And it, it's, it's, you know, we have to be able to complement each other and develop teams. So data engineers and data scientists together Working together for a solution, you have these people putting the models in production. Mm -hmm. You have the people supporting the data scientists around environmental aspects, around large data data loads, um, but not around the simple stuff like, "Hey, I need to write a script." It's like, "Do it yourself." Yeah, you should know how to do those things, right? That's right. So that that's a bit of the parity between the two roles, in my opinion.
0: Definitely. And uh, and what makes a great data engineer?
1: Yeah. So it is it is that strong knowledge around software engineering. It's also the ability to come into at any point of the life cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Even from you know, more senior people, even from an architecture perspective, not like a big floating box architecture, which anyone can create, but more around how does this actually work? How does this, how does the data flow, what are the functions that we need to develop and program to standing up an environment, to understanding AWS versus on-premise environments, to um, understand networking a bit and, and Unix, right? But at the core, the strongest point is being a strong engineer. So, very uh, long career in object-oriented programming, C++ or Java or something like that, yeah. um, that is really the heart of what makes a data engineer, I think, the most effective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they may not have as much skills around, let's say, Hadoop or whatever, but you can you can, you can train those things, but you can't train 10 years of solid software engineering skills. That's right. That is what needs to come with you. Same thing for statistics and mathematics with data scientists. Mm-hmm. You can't just make them a stats whiz overnight. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. But teaching them a function in Hive is different than, hey, can you get your PhD? It's like, it's not the same.
0: <laughs> that's so true. Yeah, that's really true. And then moving from there to the leadership side yeah. of, of that engineering and yeah. data teams in general. Yes. What do you think makes
1: great leaders? Yeah. So that's a really great question. I think it also, it combines a bit of what I mentioned before around delivery lead a bit, mm. but much more focused around the technical evangelism and inspiring people about what's next, right? Okay. So you have this very strong background in statistics or mathematics or what have you, and you've been doing this for a long time but the industry is always changing in terms of what it's using in terms of technology, use cases, right? Computer vision 10 years ago is nothing like it is now because it's been disrupted by deep learning techniques, right? Mm -hmm. So being a person that's able to understand, digest and lead that type of technical evangelism makes an incredibly good leader. So what's next? How do I stay competitive within the market? How do I deliver the best value to customers? And then also how do I excite the team that I'm the person that they should follow from a technical perspective because engineers and data scientists, they care about you being really on top of your stuff. Yeah. And if you lose that, you lose it entirely, right? So they need to have that ability to be able to talk the talk when it comes to the next technology, not bits and bytes, but the, but the vision and the applications of how we leverage this and how we're going to train our team to deploy this with
0: customers. Yeah, that's really good. And and then going, the, I guess, the next level up, well, what are some attributes that you've seen in executives that have been either good champions for... Uh, Work in this space, or good leaders in this space. Sure, Um, I think you know definitely my uh, the person that
1: I look up to a lot, or you know our co-founders, especially um, the one of the co-founders of Think Big, who always inspired the team, positive all the time. The darkest times won't phase this person. You know, Um, always inspiring other people just to think think big and also think positively, and to get the qualities out of a person even if they're below average making them above average right because you know human beings most people are around the mean you know when it comes to IQ when it comes to ability right but in making them feel powerful like they are doing something like they have a, like you know you'd always ask what's your superpower you know those types of things make people feel like they are part of a great team and it almost creates like a cult mentality where you feel powerful and strong able to go out there and learn the new things and to be able to deliver value, and it propels them through their career. And if you're not doing that, if you're not empowering your team in that way, you're not doing it right, or you have a very uh, non-thinking big team, if you will. Correct. (laughs) Their their ceiling is there. That's fine. There's needs for that in the world. But if you really want to lead something to the next level, you need to bring out the best in every one of your teammates and make them do more than they can.
0: That's right. I love that. That is is awesome. Um, Changing... um, I guess changing gears a little bit I wanted to ask you about some of your past experiences and in particular something that may have looked like a failure at the time so yes. an apparent failure or a failure that uh, was a really good experience in the long term because it later helped you or uh, helped you attain greater success do you have something that comes to mind around a, a tough time that gave you the experience yes. for something greater yeah,
1: so, yeah, failures and tough times, I would say, moving to Japan has been not a failure at all, uh, or not a regret, but it's been very challenging. Um, so, as an American, we're notorious for coming in headfirst, you know, our president aside, right? I was not even mentioned that, but, you know, coming in very aggressively, trying to change things. And it's quite nice in terms of innovation and inspiration, but in a, in a culture like this, it's absolutely just, like, not the right way to do things you know you need to have a nuanced approach and understanding that people are going to move at the pace that they're going to move at and they're going to be very confident and comfortable with that as well so how do you understand the culture that you're in um, how do you move them as fast as possible while also kind of educating and, and showing them that this is probably the way that you need to go right so blindly going after the next thing and just having that confidence and that gambling mentality doesn't necessarily work as much here Um, and I think that I've learned a lot over the you know the last you know almost year um, within Japan about how to convince people the right way to go and how to get like Concord and agreement you know you can agree with someone like this and you say yeah but you don't mean yeah you mean yeah "Yeah, I heard you and then you leave the room and just nothing happens right so being not being so fully um, relying on just the words but also Reading the atmosphere and understanding what actual agreement you're getting with people, and this is much more severe here. But I think it's also a skill that you can you can use throughout the world. You know, where you're talking to people, and it's not just the words that they're saying, like, "Hey, you know, I agree." It's more around, "Are you with me? Like, are you kind of are we connected right now? Am I bringing you along in the vision that I'm trying to share with you?" That has been very challenging, and I think I've learned a lot over the past you know nine months or so um, around how to do that.
0: And what are some 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 tips or approaches that you've developed during this period? On- sure. Well, one is
1: just knowing that yes doesn't always mean yes. That's one thing. Just yeah. always be aware. Um, another thing is getting uh, kind of agreement amongst many parties and being soft touch at first, right? So being soft touch at first, getting the agreement, and then after that, pushing pushing further, right? So once you get kind of more general concord and people are kind of getting what you're saying then you could push forward um so that was important for me so more kind of a democratic type approach right um you know also being a young person 29 years old in uh, japan yeah. that's that's also quite a challenging thing to be able to have people trust you and believe in you so also leading by example so they may not agree with you but if you show them hey look this is how it is and i've done it and then you bring it to them and say this is this can be successful and i believe in this what do you think that can also be effective in kind of convincing
0: people that this is the right path forward. So getting that, um, getting the buy-in through uh, demonstrating either your experience or um, or building something as in like maybe an early prototype and, yeah. and show by doing? Is that yeah. is that a so, kind of,
1: so it's getting it's it's kind of getting many people to agree, kind of getting general wide based support as much as possible, and also just just you know, leading by doing and showing them and getting a reputation that I do what I say I do. Mm. Another thing is, you know, Western culture maybe you may commit. I think in particular, even Europe, like particular parts of Europe, you commit to something and say, "Yeah, let's do it." You know, like I'll I'll meet you at one p.m. or something, but then you show up at one ten. You don't do that here. You got to be there. Five minutes early is on time. Yeah. So when you say something, you do it. It's a hundred percent one-to-one ratio. Like it's just it just means it, right? Um, so you have to gain a reputation that you're not that foreigner that just kind of floats by, right? And also another thing is convincing them that you want to stay here for a while. Many people come in, they experience Japan for a year, then they leave, right? But convincing them that you're here to stay for a conceivable amount of time, or at least until we get the job done, yes. and that this isn't just another Lao foreigner coming in, kind of shaking things up and then leaving with a bunch of masters they've seen many times before. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: And uh, what was it about Japan that that uh, you grabbed you and Attracted you so much. I think I think some
1: of the things that I'm perhaps complaining
0: about or pointing out now is
1: actually attractive elements about it as well. The the ability for people to be so kind of true to their word, to passionately commit to not necessarily passionately, but you know, determinately just just determined to do something, right? And people are so polite. The country is so, you know, nice to live in, the food's great. Um, the weather's pretty nice as well. So it's just a great country and a great experience. And also I always wanted to just challenge myself every time, you know, like in the masochistic way that I do things, I just wanted to go after what's more challenging and it has been, you know, challenging and rewarding and that's really what I want to do is move on to the next thing. So but additionally, the market here is fantastic. You know, it's changing so in, in such a new way. And I feel like there's been so much kind of, um, I don't know, uh, so much to have been done, but hasn't been done yet. And there's so much to do to get this kind of country from an IT perspective up to the point of other nations, right? And it is that kind of thinking differently that needs to occur, which is a bit challenging. And so I think there's great opportunity to convince people of of these things that have been so successful in the U.S.
0: Um, you know, in the past. That's really great. That's really great. And, and what are some of those... Um, some of those differences or some of those gaps that you um, that you've seen so far. Yeah,
1: so for one, Japanese companies typically outsource all IT. So, wow. yeah, so like they won't have any people in their company that can speak the same language, right? very common for companies just to give it to a provider, right? And so that's changing a bit because IT is a competitive advantage or data, right? Or whatever you want to call it within other companies, right? Data is the next oil or whatever you want to say. Um, it's a way for companies to compete. You know, Data science is taking data, putting it to the business basically and getting value from it, theoretically. So to do that, you need to have people in your company that speak a language and it's, it's happening. It's changing, right? Um, but until companies start to own a bit of it, to be able to communicate with these organizations, they won't be able to challenge their vendors enough to be able to deliver value and push the needle. So I think that's an important aspect, you know, um, and also just risk adversity around new things. IT moves so quick, so fast. You got to be able to uh, willing to try new things, and if you're not, you're going to get left behind. Right now go back to our previous conversation, that doesn't mean run, running blindly into a new technology, but you have to be moving at a quick pace or you'll get left behind like a dinosaur. That's been shown time and time and time again. It's almost like a law of, of business
0: now, right? So, That's right, that's right. That's really interesting. Um, and tell me, what do you think are some of the, the current challenges in, in our space, in, in data engineering, data science, in data in general? What do you yeah. see as some of the current, current challenges?
1: Current hiring is a challenge. Yes, uh, it really is. Um, getting again, you know, kind of going back, getting clear vision around what needs to be done. Customers are confused, but sometimes they don't trust their vendors. Sometimes for good reasons. You know, sometimes for bad reasons. Um, so that, like, that level of trust uh, is very important to get a very trusting organization to work with to drive towards value. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's really around. The race for talent and training, right? Which is training and people are upskilling all over the place, right? It's it's fantastic, but um, that's you know a challenge in general, and also um, getting clear business results and having people stick along for the ride to see those results is also quite a big challenge.
0: That's right, exactly. And how um, how have you well, what steps have you taken to improve the hiring? Uh, challenge yeah
1: that's a very good question um, so it kind of goes back to that cold mentality so in Japan in particular it's a recruiter driven market so everyone just goes to a recruiter and it's like 30 to 50 percent of your salary is a fee Wow. yes right <laughs> huge industry here right so when I saw that especially in IT so people will change jobs often in Japan right so you can be at a job 10 years so 30 percent of your salary not too big of a fee if you really extrapolate it over you know that that period of time. but if you look at a high churn market like I IT, it's just not a effective business model. Mm. If you have a person leaving after two, three, four years that's way too much money. Yes. So how do we do more organic growth right? So we've done meetups. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done kind of things to I mean meetup is a term it's not even a thing in Japan. right? they have these things called thank guys, which are like study sessions right but it's a different meaning you know, I and want, I want the Silicon Valley type culture but something that works in Japan. So how do we develop that? How do we kind of create this like rah-rah type culture within our team so that other people feel infected by it? And yeah. that's been very uh, uh, effective in us for attracting new talent and referrals. But eventually referrals, you know, you, you, it, the bucket ends, right? Like yes. They've asked everyone they know, right? So that's not a long-term sustainable strategy. So what mm-hmm. we've done is yeah, this meetup stuff, um, creating kind of a buzz in, in the local community. Um, And that usually attracts people because they want to, you know, be part of a team that is successful and happy and working on new stuff. So that's been that's
0: been our strategy so far. That's really great. And um, how how have you managed to to blend the as you said, like the Silicon Valley rah-rah with yeah. the Japanese culture for the meetups and yeah, I
1: think I think that a lot of people are looking for it, especially young engineers are uh-huh. very interested in that kind of rah-rah culture and they're also interested in new technology. So, you know, Japan is doing incredibly advanced things in many ways and IT is, you know, kind of a mixed bag, but, um, you know, having people that are Japanese, that are speaking Japanese, that are presenting in Japanese, but having that type of mentality kind of influences others because I think a lot of people are waiting for this to happen and they want to speak up and they want to do these things, but there aren't as much opportunities yet. It's occurring and it's growing and there's more startups coming into Japan, but still it's a bit more kind of slow. So for instance, if you take line line is a company and messaging application, kind of like WhatsApp, right? It's super popular in Japan, great application, fantastic, but it's this mega Goliath of a company, just like every other company in Japan where they have a lot of different things and they've got e-commerce and all this stuff. And the company runs quite traditionally, actually. Same thing for other, you know, other companies perhaps in Japan that you think are super startup-y. but when you really look under the covers, maybe they're a bit more domestic. So, you know, are there really any true Googles that are here? You know, maybe not. You know, so that's still something that's not quite caught on here. But people like that. So they see it and they're like, oh, I want to be part of that. So it's kind of helping the people that are kind of hidden to come out of the you know, come out of the woodworks and join
0: our cause, essentially. That's fantastic. That's fantastic, and um, I I didn't even know that the the startup culture mentality was um, not very um, not very big in Japan.
1: Uh, I mean, startups happen. There's yes. successful startups here, but it's just different than Silicon Valley. Yes, and that's you know a bit unfair because there aren't many places like Silicon Valley, but there are a lot of places in the world that are trying to mimic that type of lifestyle in london when i lived in london 2 years i mean that was happening aggressively right they were trying to recreate that type of spirit right even in brooklyn you yes. know they're trying to create that you know like so everyone's trying to create that they're trying to do it here but
0: you know i, I don't think it's quite there yet yes yeah, so you have to take the the international idea and localize it with uh, exactly with the but, flavor. Not,
1: but not too much so that you lose it right and that's that's the risk so how do you strike the right balance?
0: That's true. That's very true. Interesting. And what do you think is is um, coming up next in in the data space? Are there future trends or future challenges? Yeah. Future applications? Yeah. What do you see coming up?
1: That's a great question. I'd like I'd like to maybe hear your opinion as well. Steal your ideas, but um. So I think you know, the, of course, the big buzzword now. You had data science that became super buzzy, and then AI followed it right after. AI has been around since the beginning of computers, since 1950. Right, it's been around forever, but now all of a sudden, everything to do with analytics is AI. Yeah. You run a report, it's AI. It's like, oh, I don't know if that's really what it is, sir. You know, <laughs> but you know, let's let's do the tango. You know, to get to the next point, it's fine, right? Yeah. But. If we really, you know, just kind of throw away that type of, you know, overgeneralization, we talk about real machine learning applications being put into production, not just for Google but for companies everywhere, yeah. right? That's where we're going to see, you know, incredible um, results, right? Um, and having AI go from just this experimental thing, or in Japan you'll see all these robots. They're like yeah. these little, like, short robot, like, uh, usually they're like these white robots, and they they look like this. They'll see you and they'll talk to you. Very basic artificial intelligence, in my opinion. Really, wow! You'll see them all over. They're like kind of like gimmicks, right? Put them in the stores, but um, but they're super popular, right? And this is just like the beginning, right? We're seeing so much more advances coming. Google just recently did that their uh, press conference with the with a translation app that was fantastic, right? So we're really getting to this point. Uh, maturity where AI is going to be in the enterprise Mm -hmm. which is something that we didn't see before except for very few companies Um, and by AI I mean machine learning applications don't even even talk about deep learning but just machine learning applications being in the enterprise and delivering actual revenue to companies and value to customers that is happening but it's it's the trend that's going I think to explode
0: definitely definitely And and that's really really exciting and how do you see the the adoption of, of machine learning in the robotics space in Japan because i guess japan has such a, um, it's famous for the advances yes. in, in robotics yeah. uh, so it's interesting to hear yeah. that they're missing so
1: that piece. i think you know and i i i'm not in
0: incredibly that you
1: know uh, knowledgeable about robotics in particular in japan but what I can say and what I've noticed that engineering, like engineering, physical engineering, engineering cars, engineering plane, you know, like um, engineering escalators, is perfection right here. I mean, they, they've mastered every type of process. So when you look at the more kind of physical aspects, right, even around computer vision, huge advances, right. But in the world of IT, they're they're perhaps not on par with places like in the U.S. Yeah. So you have this incredible advance advances around engineering, and then you have this kind of up and coming aspect around IT. So yeah, like they are leading with robotics in some ways, but I think they're also limited a bit around IT innovation in other ways, which kind of kind of hold them back a bit because they already are advanced in so many other ways, robotics wise, you know, from an engineering perspective. But that whole machine learning experimentation thing, risk adverse. uh, you know, going against risk adversity and just trying things that are risky and doing experimental stuff. It's not its not as widespread here. It's not as aggressive. So because of that, I think you're going to not see as much innovation as you would you would expect. Yes. Um, and that's threatening, you know, and, you know, the U.S. with Tesla and other car companies, they're doing self-driving cars at a faster rate than other manufacturers, let's just say, right? So yeah. they need to wake up to IT. They need to wake up and say, Okay, here let's put some budget behind this, and then let's drive it—not just money, but also culture.
0: It's very important. Very, very important. And then, how do you how do you think the uh, something like self-driving cars will? How do you think that will come into Japan? I've heard that there's a really strong taxi union, and yeah. obviously, there's all these cultural aspects. That- yeah. Just as an example, what what do you think yeah. could happen there?
1: So there's a huge, huge push behind it, and I think that Japan feels a bit behind, and they are. You know, like Ford is coming out with stuff. GM, bankrupt GM, is wow. coming out with stuff around self-driving cars, which yeah. is very advanced. But where is it? Are you you're not hearing enough from Japan? Like the, the mega-goliath companies here, right? they they run like German right and Japanese automotive companies, right? That's the thing, and you're seeing a lot of advances in Germany as well, but. The U.S. is really, I think, leading the world this time when it comes to something related to automotive, yes. and it's because of that, you know, that push for, uh, you know, leveraging ad- advanced information technology than the Elon Musk aspect of it, right? In Japan, they're they're fighting; they're trying to go for it really quickly. Um, the taxi thing, yeah, that's a whole other thing, but um they're very traditional they have these white gloves and everything it's a really nice experience to get to actually japan so that's more of a socioeconomic and political thing as well so i think that's that's like the uber thing that's happening in the u.s but just self-driving cars or assisted driving mechanisms in cars i think they they are trying as much as they can to do it and i hope that they're able to succeed and to catch up with uh, this pace of innovation around it that they're trying to do but they are behind right now and that's the reality so it's a it's a catch-up game right now and again can't just throw money at it. Exactly. You have to have the culture. You can't attract the best engineers in the world with just a salary. It's That's also right. I mean you gotta have that Google mentality. It's exactly. just
0: reality. Spot on. And you can't and you can't create them without that change in, in culture. So that that is uh, sport spot on. Um, mate, this has been excellent. Excellent. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for doing the interview yeah. and I appreciate you sharing all your insights. Yeah. Thank you very much for your Thanks for your time. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.